folding pocket. Welcome to The Rabbit Hole Detectives, a podcast where I, Dr. Kat Jarman, Richard Coles and Charles Spencer chase the provenance of historical objects, both real and metaphorical. Each episode, we set one another the task of finding out as much as we can about a particular subject to present a comprehensive understanding of the origin stories of stuff. After all, everything has a history. It just depends on how far down the rabbit hole you're prepared to go. And at the end of it all, our disembodied voice pronounces a winner. So hello again, rabbit holers. Hello. Hello. So we are back again in real life, everyone. In the same All together. Place. That's so nice. Yes. But in Chippenham. In Wiltshire. Yes, yeah, so we've taken you out of Northamptonshire and everywhere and sort of trying to conquer other the counties. <laughs> I feel like yes. we're on location. Yes. yes. Exciting. Well, you are, Richard. You're on a book tour. That's We're chasing you to try and get just a moment of your time. Well, that's very decent of you. But I know it's near where you live, Kat. <laughs> it is. So, yes, this is more home territory for me, really. But, um, no, it's nice to be in the southwest in the summer and by the river. Mm. Little holiday. In quite a small cubicle. <laughs> <laughs> it is a little bit nice and hot. It's a bit like a sauna. Yeah, no, it's great. Going back to sauna at sauna times as well. But, it's the uh, rock and roll aspect of podcasting. I'm sure it's the brilliance of our discourse that's raising the temperature. Definitely. Gosh. And did you also notice we do have a green room outside with a pool table? I know, it's exciting. It takes me back to my rock and roll days. <laughs> really? What did you have? What was the most glamorous location, green room type thing you ever had? Sigma Sound in New York, one of the great, great studios. And I remember it was the first studio I ever recorded in. We flew to New York, how excited was that? And I walked into the studio and who was the first person I saw? Yoko Ono. <gasps> and I thought, that's so exciting. That yes. is exciting. No no chance of singer in Chippenham, I don't think. <laughs> and what were your riders and your contract? What did you have on? In oh, well, room? for touring, mm. not really excessive at all. I mean, actually, we toured in our band. There were eight women in our band, so most of our ride was actually sanitary products in the end, which was unusual for a touring band. But also, you know that thing about how we were together 24-7. They were supposed to be synchro menstruating. And we thought, blimey, what's it going to be like to have eight premenstrual women all on the same day? Actually, it's not true, I don't think. No, it's not. They've checked it. Oh, really? It's not true? Yeah, it's not true. It's just yeah. coincidence because actual time and how it works. Maybe that was a good thing. <laughs> well, I mean, it would have been an interesting gig, I think, if eight of the members on stage had, were premenstrual, yeah. I was thinking of more rock and rolly stories than that, actually, Richard. <laughs> <laughs> so, I'm not going to sound disappointed, but fine. That's just we weren't very rocker. We did have a bass player called Dave, and he said one day, I trashed my hotel room and no one had ever done that before. <laughs> and when we said, as we'd actually done, we found out that he'd just torn up a copy of The Guardian. <laughs> That's it, isn't it? That's the ultimate. That's pretty wild. Yeah. <laughs> Keith Moon can rest in peace. Yeah. Charles, I imagine you as a member of the Drones or some kind of weird club in Piccadilly where you're kind of constant bun fights or swinging from chandeliers or something. I think I've mentioned I was elected into the Bullingdon Club at Oxford, oh. but I turned it down came back to my room and found it completely destroyed and thought I'd had a break-in. It turned out it was various Hooray Henrys had trashed my room. For not joining their club? Well, no, for trying. that was a signal that you were favoured. And I said, well, I don't really want to join. So yeah. not very rock and roll. Mm-hmm. <laughs> not very bread roll, anyway. <laughs> <laughs> so shall we go on to our topics for today? Because actually I know that this isn't a competition at all. <laughs> But we have been keeping score, so we've totted up how we're doing. 
So oh. how do you think we're doing? I have no idea. I, 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 I know. I kept a bit of a tabs on the first series, but no, I have no idea now. Charles, you and I are tied with six wins each. Richard, I'm afraid you're a bit behind. You're on four now. No, so well, yeah. you have a bit of catching up to do. It's but just a number count. <laughs> it is, it is. But maybe Wilcher's going to give you luck. And you never know. I just, I just think for a moment of Arsenal at the top of the league, top of the league, top of the league, and then someone came from behind and took it from them. Just a thought. <laughs> Well, okay, fine. Let's see. So we're going to let you start, at least. Well, thank you. the topic you were given this week was royal pets. Royal pets. Now, I feel slightly that we've nudged in that direction before because I remember Charles and and you kept both talking about Henry I's... Was it Henry I's polar bear that was kept in the Tower of London and he was let out for a swim on the end of a rope or something and people would throw mackerel at it or something. I've got that right. It's a very yes. fine pricey of yes. cats <laughs> winning menagerie <laughs> entrance. Thank you. Yes, it was a little bit later than the first, but yeah, that was the story. Okay, well, so, I mean, menageries is one thing. I think we can focus this down a little bit onto pets because it's actually rather a fascinating story about royals and their pets. In our own time, of course, it's very hard to think of the queen, the late queen, without thinking of corgis. And I've a friend of mine who has a corgi has grown rich and sleek on the proceeds of renting the corgi out to the crown because whenever they film anything in Windsor Castle which they always actually film at Beaver Castle so the Duke of Rutland gets a few quid too um, she sends her corgi off to mm. pad around and uh, anyway the corgi's now got an agent literally because we associate <laughs> the Queen so much with corgis in fact it was Duke of York later George VI and her mother the Queen Mother who were the ones who had the corgis to begin with but she was given her first corgi I think when she was 17 called Susan such a queen <laughs> name isn't it Royal <laughs> Corgi name Royal corgi named Susan. And Susan is the kind of mother of all the corgis and the dorgies because the Queen and the Queen Mother very sensibly crossed corgis with dachshunds because Queen Victoria was wisely a great keeper of dachshunds as indeed was Prince Albert. So dorgies were a thing too. But uh, it all goes back to the inestimable Susan. In fact, who could fail to be moved at the funeral of the Queen when it went into Windsor Park and there were her corgis and her ponies Mm. waiting to say goodbye as she went along. Very moving thing. Well, not her first pet. Do you know what her first pet was? No. No. A chameleon. (gasps) She and Princess Margaret were given a chameleon, which they were so excited about, they fetched out a copy of Debrett's because that's what's to hand, I guess, in Buckingham Palace. (laughs) It was given to her by Lord Mountbatten, actually, and the chameleon went bright red, and they were very, very excited about that. So they kept the chameleon. The Queen, being ever thoughtful, used to take the chameleon to the windows and then position it on her hand so with its um, great sticky tongue it could um, drag blue bottles, unfortunate blue bottles, buzzing on the window panes at Buckingham Palace into its maw. So there you go, Camilla Puzzle. Do we know its name, Richard? No, I can't find out its name. I've had a good look. It's written about in Crawfee, her her nanny's memoir, but we don't know the name of the chameleon. But of course, lots of royals have had pets. George V had a parrot called Charlotte that he taught to whistle, God Save the King. Now, you'd think if you were the king, <laughs> the last thing you'd want is yeah. to hear that tune. It would be like tune. hearing your greatest <laughs> hit over and over again, yes. wouldn't it? But anyway, he did treat, he taught Charlotte to whistle God Save the King. Queen Victoria also had a parrot. Why do the royal family love their pets so much? Well, I think it's because you get love without deference. That's mm. it, isn't it? Mm. Is that the animals love you in the way that animals love the humans in their lives, but there's none of that. They don't know it's the queen. They don't know it's the king. And I'm sure that's a reason why you'd like to have dogs and horses around you. Some royals have been a bit more spectacular. The Maharaja of Junagadh, 
I was in Junigad recently when on my tour of Gujarat, and I don't know, I don't know if you've ever been there, but you'd recognise it because it has this spectacular mausoleum, absolute wedding cake of onion domes and minarets. It makes the Brighton Pavilion look like a sort of Bauhaus bomb shelter. It's just <laughs> so extravagant. And the Maharaja of Junigad, who died, well, his reign ended in 1947 after partition, was a man who kept hundreds of dogs. He adored dogs. He adored them so much that the dogs had their own special kennel with their own special servants. They were dressed up in court dress and in evening dress when there was a sort of dinner in the evening. They had their own telephones. Oh. The dog literally <laughs> had a telephone to bark into. I don't know what for. Really. And Hungry. one day the Maharaja of Junagad decided that he was going to marry off his favourite dog to a golden retriever called Bobby. And Bobby was delivered to Junagad in a specially commissioned train. And the Maharaja took his best dog down to meet Bobby, her betrothed, in a procession in which he sat on an elephant and 200 dogs in court dress accompanied him. That's going some, isn't it? Well, it's absolutely mad, isn't it? But actually, dogs and telephones. When I, I, I spent a lot of time in California and won a prize at an auction, which was for my dog to have a telephone conversation with an animal shrink to talk about its worries. £250 and dollars an hour it would have cost, but I got it for free. Money well spent. <laughs> How's Did the it dog? work? Yes. I don't think the conversation was that forthcoming, <laughs> but the bill was. Dog on the dog and bone. Exactly. And they said, the woman who was doing this service said that she had actually had a very depressed Alsatian on earlier, which was telling the, well, the expert, I suppose, that... She didn't like her owner's fungal toenails. Oh. So there was some bad news to, to impart. But also, in California, it's, you can make a living in <laughs> any way you want, really, can't you? That's good. Um, dogs, dogs, dogs. We always associate dogs, don't we, with royal families. But, of course, cats, cats, cats too. But which court was the cattiest court of all? Ooh, that's China? a good question. No, Versailles. Oh. Louis Quinze. Louis says, adored cats. Louis Cairns in particular. He loved his cats so much that one of them was called Brion. And it was such an intimate of the king that it had its own cushion when he sat in council. And he wouldn't hold a council unless he was allowed. The cat was all was sitting there in state, so to speak. So the cat, Brion, was a great favourite. Louis says, who came along next, was not such a big fan of cats. But by then, the court was completely overrun with cats because they'd become such favourites. And there was a descendant of Brion, also called Brion, who belonged to a famous courtier, a lady of the court. But Louis says was so fed up with cats that he shot it in a fit of pique. Some say <laughs> he actually whacked it with a hammer. But anyway, he dispatched the cat, which mm. sent terrible, terrible grief around the court. And unusually for a king and despot, he apologised, made a fulsome apology and replaced the cat. But cats got the most terrible revenge. Do you know how? No. So these Angora cats pretty much had the run of Versailles and they would make themselves at home. And one of them one day curled up in Louis XVI's commode and was just minding its own business in there. The king came into the chamber to relieve himself early in the morning for his matins evacuation, so to speak, sat down on the commode and duly produced, whereupon the cat woke up and was not pleased <laughs> to have this deposit land on him and lashed out with its claws and I'm afraid caught the king in his tenderest parts who leapt from his commode, blood streaming from his regions 
with his stockings down his ankles, ran around screaming for help. So be very, very careful, folks. Just make sure if you're going to use a commode that there isn't a cat. So many lessons. (laughs) Yes, a lot of lessons to be learned from this. Not very good. So interesting, though, if you look at really old archaeological examples of people buried with their pets, aren't they? Do you know any of the royal pets, more recent royal pets, that have been killed to accompany their well, owners? This is a really controversial one, Kat, and I know this from my previous incarnation as a vicar. Lots of people, when they die, not just royals, wish to be buried with their pets, entirely mm. understandably. And, of course, you know we know from burials in your part of the world that it wasn't unusual for people to be buried with their dogs, for example. Yeah. It's illegal here. And it's a real problem because often people say, I want to be buried with the ashes of my dog, my cat. And we have to say that is not lawful. And the reason is different health and safety regimes apply to the disposal of different forms of waste. So animal waste is considered different from what's left of us when we have breathed our last. And so it's not allowed. However, it is not unknown for clergy and funeral directors to just maybe look out of the window (laughs) if someone should come by before the coffin lid is screwed down and add sentimental items to it. That's very thoughtful. Well, don't quote me, he said in a public forum. (laughs) Um, Oh, I should say, of course, when the Queen's chameleon died, they had a proper funeral service for it with a coffin and everything because she felt that the chameleon should be laid to rest appropriately. (laughs) This takes me on to my favourite fact. It's quite a long one, though. I'm sorry. Okay, that's fine. My favourite royal pet was Joy. The Tsarevich, Alexei, the last Tsarevich, had a pet spaniel called Joy, a cocker spaniel that he adored, went everywhere with him, including into exile after the Russian Revolution when the imperial family was um, packed off eventually to Ekaterinburg, to the Apatyev house in Ekaterinburg. Joy was one of three dogs that went with them. On the night of, I think it was July 16th, 17th, I can't remember, the disembodied voice would tell us in 1917 uh, or 18, I can't remember that. 17. I, it was 17, wasn't it? Mm-hmm. The royal family was summoned in the middle of the night to get ready in a cellar for they were to be moved on. So there was the imperial family and four of their servants and three of their dogs. And of course, it ended very badly for them. The first fusillade of shots, Joy the Spaniel ran. Of course you would. The other dogs, I'm afraid, didn't survive the execution. But Joy ran off and was um, took shelter wherever uh, wherever he could. Then, a few days later, turned up again. And one of the Red Army guards took pity on him and sort of took him in and adopted him. And then in one of those kind of moments of history of reversal of fortunes, the white Russians came through and kicked out. Anyway, they took Ekaterinburg too late, I'm afraid, for the imperial family. But one of the officers there found Joy and recognized Joy because he had known the court in St. Petersburg. And Joy recognized him. And in a heartbreaking moment, there was this bit where that white Russian officer eventually reunited him with one of the ladies of the court and the dog recognised the lady and just had been absolutely devastated at the thought of looking for the Tsarevich and thought the Tsarevich would be the next to appear and of course the Tsarevich never appeared so poor old Joy the Spaniel was devastated. History turned again and all of a sudden the Bolsheviks assumed power. So the white Russian officer took Joy with him and the imperial family into exile to Windsor and Joy ended up living out his days in Windsor and was buried in a special doggy grave in Windsor, which is now, I'm afraid, a car park. Oh, no. The bloke Poor ended Joy. up as the, as the riding instructor to Edward VIII, actually. So he continued to have that relationship with the royal family. And Joy the Spaniel continued to have a relationship with, I suppose, his master's cousins. But the one survivor on the Romanov side of that terrible, terrible execution in the Apache of House in Ekaterinburg. Oh, no. Well, that's, I, I'm glad Joy got away. Yes, at least ending up in an unexpected place, I suppose. Mm. Imagine that, the trauma 
The dog well, that dog yes. was. Well, the trauma they all went through. But imagine that the one surviving witness on that side of what happened in that cellar. Yes, mm. being a dog. That's quite unexpected. Uh, Richard Henry III was the owner of the polar bear at the Tower of London that you talked about earlier. And you mentioned the late Queen Elizabeth II and her first corgi, Susan. She was 18, not 17, when Lord Mountbatten gave her the dog as a present. Thank you. I Easily done. Easily done. <laughs> Can't win them all, Richard. Uh, there you go. So there's say. some royal pets for you to enjoy. I oh, like hey, very quickly, Charles II loved his dogs. So much so that Samuel Pepys said it was impossible to have a meeting with him because he just pay any attention at all. He just played with his dog for the time. And they weren't house trained. They just no, sort of... they suckled and shat everywhere. <laughs> well, there you go. Yes, they did. They, they did. John Evelyn wrote about. Absolutely. Yeah. Sorry. And they they went around in a sort of pack. There were a dozen or so of them. Yeah. yeah. There we go. Yeah. Okay. Thank you, Richard. <laughs> that was a very good way to end it. And then we're going to move on to you, Charles, this time. And you have been looking into crack or elite military units. Yes, it's interesting because I thought I would go in an obvious direction when I took this subject on. But there's just so many examples through the thousands of years of human existence of these units. I think essentially leaders needed an elite unit that other soldiers could aspire to and which the leaders, the kings usually, could rely on as their bodyguards. And the earliest one I could find was from 16th century BC and they were the army rangers of ancient Egypt. They would scour the desert looking for problems on behalf of the pharaohs and guard the royal family, its, its palaces and tombs. And then the most recent one I looked at, I didn't want to do the really obvious ones like the SAS or Delta Force or whatever, were the tunnel rats who fought in Vietnam. They were on the American side against the Viet Cong. Viet Cong had 250 kilometres of tunnels under their part of Vietnam, a lot of which had been dug out to deal with the Japanese in World War II. And then that had been added to exponentially as the American war took place. And it was impossible. You know, the Americans, it's sort of a sort of microcosm of the problem the Americans had in defeating the Viet Cong was that these very small people could get into very cramped spaces underground and get away from American bombing, etc. And the Americans tried at first to carpet bomb, put sniffer dogs down, flood the tunnels with gas and even water. But really it came down to the tunnel rats to actually get stuck in and go down, usually in pairs, because quite often one would get killed by a booby trap. Uh, the Viet Cong were very good at putting bombs down in, in places where they thought the Americans might intrude. And they also deployed wildlife. One man was bitten by uh, an enormous number of scorpions, and another one was actually eaten by a snake. So these are the earliest ones. But the ones I really found interesting are going back to ancient Greece and their battles, really. And, of course, the most famous crack unit of all time would be the 300 the Spartans who died at Thermopylae. Oh, my favourite. <laughs> <laughs> so they, they're coming from a culture where warfare is everything. We still use the adjective Spartan to describe a rather austere lifestyle. But the Spartan boy would be taken away from his family age seven and be given a very, very tough upbringing, learning to go everywhere barefoot, eat a very modest diet, sleep on a, a wooden bed, etc. And... Then there would be, by the time they got to 20, they could aspire to becoming uh, an elite, part of the 300, as it were. They died nearly to a man. I believe one got away at Thermopylae, and that, that perpetuated their myth. But they were up against all sorts. There were so many other crack regiments in the ancient world. The most 
impressive in terms of number and presence would have been the immortals that belonged to the Persian army of the 6th and 5th century BC. Very pampered because the Persian kings believed in luxury and they would be given comfort women, as we call them now, gold jewellery and really good food, etc. They were very pampered and they were actually put to the sword by Alexander the Great. So there's sort of rolling program of lead acts in terms of military units. We've glossed over Sparta, aspects of the Spartan <laughs> military discipline and regime, which I think is particularly fascinating, is that they yes. were a band of lovers, weren't they? That was part of the... Oh, that's the Thebes. The oh, Thebans. sorry, I'm in the wrong place. I'm sorry, I'm just no. anticipating the excitement of the <laughs> yes. Theban warriors. No, the sacred band of, of Thebes, Thebes of course, were yeah. actually, or you're not at all off point, actually, Richard, because they actually defeated the Spartans, if I can put it that way. And they were an elite regiment of 300, founded by a, a Theban general called Gorgidas. And he believed that if you bonded the troops together in a, a sort of homoerotic way, in 150 pairings of two men, that they wouldn't leave their other half behind in a bloody battle. And it would make them that much more battle-worthy, which was true. They did incredibly well. They were the crack troops. Brilliant idea, isn't it, to romanticise the relationship you have with your fighting partner so that the thought of abandoning them would be unthinkable. I think it's very clever. And it worked for a long time. I mean, to beat the Spartans at their own game, they, they were actually thought invincible until they were sadly defeated and pretty much wiped out. We reckon we know where 254 of the 300... Uh, made their last stand. And I've been there, Charles. Have you? I've been on the very spot where they all died. I was over. I was doing a documentary actually about it, and the uh, and there was a charming archaeologist, the bloke who runs the Athens Acropolis, Harvard guy runs the Acropolis dig. I'm sure you know. Okay, him. yeah. And he was being very thoughtful about this, but I was, couldn't speak. I was just no. overwhelmed at the thought of the Theban band meeting their end. But it's it's incredible, isn't it? And, and actually, the people who put them to the, their sword, really, was um, Alexander the Great as a young man serving his father, Philip of Macedon. And Alexander the Great, one of the great soldiers of all time, he had a, a particularly useful crack military unit, which was his companion cavalry. And he had this enormous army which conquered the known world in the 4th century BC. But the companion cavalry was the, the really hardcore end of it, which cracked open Persian armies, usually from attacking from behind. And they were very well armed. They had a, a two-handed spear, which they used to start with, and then two swords, one for cutting and the other for slashing. Oof. But it's a very effective thing to have a lead unit that's going to do stuff in advance of the main army. And we also look at the berserkers who you find them referred to in the first century AD. And these tended to be German or Scandinavian fighters, uh, anyway, northern Europeans, who essentially were, were sort of seen as wild and lawless. And they would on purpose wear no armor because they wanted to show the disdain they had for such mundane thing as wounds. And they would have uh, what was considered to be the bear's strength and savagery and would charge in first as a sort of morale boost to the rest of the army following behind, their bloodthirstiness and, and nakedness, pretty much naked, making them the people to follow into battle. And then I know, Kat, we just touched on your <laughs> Scandinavians, but I want to get into the Varangians, who I'm sure you yes. know about. And these were fine Nordic warriors who, from the 10th century onwards, found employment in Byzantium. They were considered a, a really important personal guard to the Byzantine ruler. They were paid incredibly well. And their real bonus was when one of the kings died. They were allowed to help themselves to as much treasure as they could carry away by themselves. And this led to a lot of jealousy back in Sweden in particular. 
they were written out of the property laws because they were thought to be doing so well overseas that they couldn't then come back and claim any property back in, in Scandinavia. So they're Vikings plus, I think I'd call them. <laughs> yes, absolutely. <laughs> and then the ones I really wanted to look at, because I'd never heard of them before, they are a World War II unit called the Night Witches. Oh, never heard of them. No. Okay. Well, they were a female night bomber regiment, and Stalin approved their formation when it was put to him because he could see the propaganda value. And they were flying, between 1942 and 1945, they are flying these little planes, really crop dusters or, or training planes for pilots, but they would take a light load of bombs, 350 kilograms, and go over the German units and cut the engine. And the reason they were called the Night Witches is because the German soldiers said it sounded like witches on broomsticks above them. They're incredibly effective. There were about 23,000 missions. They only lost 32 of their number, obviously all female. And they were a really impressive outfit, and they caused consternation in the German lines to the extent that if a German shot one of them down, he automatically got an iron cross because they were trying to incentivize the downing of the night witches. Like an owl after a vole, when there's a silent killer from the night, just kind of bang, all of a sudden. There's a and what a psychological... Mm. I mean, that is quite something. And particularly, imagine the attitudes at the time, knowing that it's women up there causing this devastation, you know, on this completely misogynistic army of the, of the Third Reich. I've got a question here, Charles, yes. if I may. Elite units, all very well, but there's a kind of HR problem, isn't it? <laughs> now, if you've got your berserkers not wearing any army and kind of yes. going into the thick of battle, the chances are that your casualty rate will be quite high. When they, so they let you do all their brave, their bravery, and it comes at the cost, doesn't it, of, of, of a high casualty rate. So you wonder how effect Is it the propaganda that makes them effective? Well, I think as an example to the troops, it's amazing to follow people who are that disinterested in their own safety. And what I found with all of these regiments, or crack units, because they're not regiments, but it was very easy to restock them. So people aspired to be part of it. The Spartans with the 300, every year there was a, a ritualized selection committee to see if you were tough enough to get in. It was really brutal. I mean, rather like the SAS selection committee where they let a bunch of paratroopers hunt you down on the Welsh Brecon beacons or whatever, and, and then you get a very nasty shock from them. The people who didn't quite make it into the 300 would be used to toughen up the 300 and have really a, a very unpleasant time of it. But some of them weren't making that choice themselves, though. You were saying that some were sent by their families when no, they were No, all, all of Spartan boys were kicked out of the family at seven to become citizens yeah. and soldiers. Particularly with the immortals of the Persian army, they would be invited in because they'd be noted for their ability. And the same with the Theban, the band of Thebes, which was the one you were particularly interested in, Richard. But that was done by, you'd see who was the most able, you know, who'd invite them in. But my most favourite fact was an elite outfit which has been fictionalised in rather dramatic form, the ninjas. Because yes. um, I was expecting them to all be wearing black and firing those talent Oh, stars. yeah, and yeah. nunchuckers. Yes. And flying star thing. And nunchuckers, that's it. But actually, they're incredibly interesting. They're part of the feudal Japanese structure. We see them from the 12th century onwards. They really peaked in the 15th to 17th century. The skills they had to learn were infiltration, sabotage, camouflage and assassination. And it would be years of training to really get these people into a position where they could strike hell into the heart of your enemy. And they used to like to disguise themselves sometimes as monks or merchants. They were an elite unit, very similar to, our, I would say, our special secret services today in that they would quietly 
go about their business. And of course, the real joy of them in, in such a ritualized culture as medieval Japan, they weren't bound by the laws of the samurai. They were a rogue outfit that was very, very highly trained. And they knew how to use poison, explosives and blade throwing. And they worked in teams, not alone. They had short axes and swords rather than those nunchucks that we were talking about. And the thing is, after a while, they became less effective because clan leaders who were frightened for their lives knew how to deal with things. They, they would put booby traps in their homes and install floors with squeaking planks. So that's the real ninja. Mm. I didn't know that. No, I didn't either. I like uh, that. And these were kind of guns for hire in a way. There's a sort of mercenary element to these crack units sometimes. Well, I think so. For instance, you know, the, our SAS, which I've touched on a couple of times, they can get used for yeah. things that people don't know yeah. about. It could be lent to another... Another power. force, so an ally of, of sorts. And definitely those Rangan guides. I mean, they were mercenaries, really. And that's yes. in the Viking Age, that was quite common. You would just work for whoever hired you. Actually. Oh, absolutely. There was very little loyalty in these crack units. I mean, Julius Caesar and Augustus Caesar, their absolute peak bodyguards were not really the Praetorian Guard, but these German cavalrymen. Julius Caesar said what fabulous bodies they had. And they were the unit that protected some of the Caesars. But they were the enemy who switched sides for a, a decent deal. I do, you will laugh at this, but I did some work with the Royal Marines at Limpston Commando. Apropos. I'm sure you taught them everything. <laughs> well, they were fascinating. It was so fascinating to be there. But one of the things I noticed, and it's you know elite unit again, is the loyalty is... Is I think primarily to each other. You didn't yes. get the mm. sense that it was sort of queen and country in a way that it might be with the guards regiment, for example. They were incredibly tight. They fought together, they lived together, they did everything together, and they were incredibly loyal to each other. Maybe that was what gave them the edge sometimes in, mm. in yes. combat situations. Mm. I don't know. Mm -hmm. Now, berserkers, right? Yeah. I was a great reader of the Henry Treese Viking novels for young people when I was young. Really whetted my appetite for all things Viking. And I don't think it was in the books, but I had the impression that berserkers were sometimes completely off their faces on hallucinogenic mushrooms or something like that. Is there any evidence for that? Case? Yes, there's a lot of in popular culture around that, actually. Unfortunately, there's absolutely no evidence of it whatsoever. We don't actually know where that's even come from because it's not in any of the sources. And slightly disappointingly, the berserkers probably weren't quite what we like yeah. to think that they were. It seems like they were more a sort of... So it doesn't necessarily fighting, but they were actually kind of having more of a sort of ceremonial part of it, a bit like before a rugby game. And you have, because they do have their dancers and oh, they the had their sort of the hucker. So it's a bit like that. They were sort of bringing everyone into a bit of a frenzy, into uh. battle. So a lot of looking at the sources is suggesting that possibly instead of actually oh. fighting, they were doing more of that. So they mm. were getting everyone sort of riled up and ready to fight. Well, I mean, I love the idea of all the berserkers having a sort of green room <laughs> yes. behind the battle as <laughs> They go back and go, oh, exhausting. This is a terrible Let's audience today. Come <laughs> on, up your game. <laughs> exactly, yeah. Also, because I've looked into the types of drugs that were available and none of them would be particularly useful. So magic mushrooms is one of the ones that's usually sort of pulled out. But actually, it's not very reliable if you were to take that. No, there's no archaeological evidence of them having actually existed, is there? No, no. So it's more a sort of... Well, so they're... There's something called berserkers, but not as that sort of fighting unit. Yes. Which is a, I suppose in, in kind of gallantry, we read into these things what we wish for ourselves, don't mm. we? I've just noticed it. So if anyone was ever in the SAS and had a connection to that or the SBS, there's this sort of, the room defers to them, doesn't it? That has such prestige and such kudos if you've done that. Yes. Absolutely. Unimaginable, really. Well, thank you for that, uh, Charles. So 
We did talk before we move on last time about languages and mm-hmm. the sort of issues we had trying to learn languages and speaking things. But what about learning them? Because we've all learned languages at school, but probably quite different schools. How did you learn languages and did it work? I mean, I'm interested because I was a sort of guinea pig. So we started off doing Latin, French and so forth in a sort of traditional English way. And uh, it was all done with these really dreary books. It was a book, series of books by someone called Hilliden Botting and it was just full of phrases of Caesar attacking ditches in various grammatical forms. You just had to <laughs> recite over and over again. So dreary. And then we had the excitement of the Cambridge Latin course and that came along and that told us the story of Caecilius who was a chap who lived in Pompeii based actually on the archaeological evidence of Pompeii. They yeah. had a dog called Kerberos and I was with so Sophie Hay, actually, who's an archaeologist there, only a little while ago. And I saw the mosaic of Kerberos that I remember from the books. So it told the story of Caecilius, and that was a way of engaging you with the language in a more effective way. Did it stick with me? Yes, it did, actually. Okay. It opened up other languages in a way that I found quite useful. Yeah, I remember Ecce Romani, which oh, is yeah. look at the Romans. That. With a, it was a look at a household in ancient Rome, and that was teaching Latin. And there was a young girl called Cornelia in it which my woman-hating headmaster, she used, to, he used to call her camel face, just for, <laughs> as a sort of completely pointless insult. <laughs> and then French, uh, I was taught by a Frenchman, Monsieur Dubois, thanks to the caricature. Actually, it was a jeton-smoking Parisian, <laughs> uh, and he was quite effective. Then German, Das Leben in der Schule, which was the life in the school, and a lot of parroting. So, yeah, I, yeah. I, all very distinctive. What about you? We mainly did English, really, from, from about the age of 10. All our course books were very much about life in England and all the things you do. So we were all interested in both in the language and also all the cultural bits. And you were saying we sort of daily routines and people going to the Odeon and things. We were all excited about the Odeon. What was that? <laughs> um, so it was all very cultural as well. I think also because of everything, if you grew up in Scandinavia, is in English, really. So TV, we don't dub anything. So you, you hear it all the time. And I was really interested in learning songs. I was very, very nerdy, as you can probably imagine. <laughs> I would get the song lyrics out of CDs and, and translate them in my little dictionary and write oh, them out oh, in translation. Communists. <laughs> so I can understand. Did you do communists? It wasn't quite my time, so I missed oh, that. That's more archaeology we're talking about now. <laughs> <laughs> wasn't that far off, but of mm, yeah, I would have done. Maybe I should, should I do that for next time. Should I give I you a translation be, of I one would of your? I'd be so touched. Excellent. Well, in that case. Why do you ask, Kat? Well, (laughs) funny you should ask me that question. I do ask because if you wanted to add another language to your portfolio, you can try Babbel, the language app built around having real-life conversations. So probably no Romans, I suppose. Right now, Babbel is offering our Rabbit Hole listeners a lifetime subscription with a 60% discount using the promo code RABBIT. Just go to babbel.com forward slash lifetime and use promo code RABBIT for 60% on Babbel for a lifetime. That's B-A-B-B-E-L dot com slash lifetime, promo code RABBIT. And the offer is only valid until June 30th. Babbel, learn a new language in just 15 minutes a day. Sounds good to me. Definitely. What are you going to Sehr gut, would you say? Yes. So... Working already? Yes, yeah. it really is. <laughs> we don't need it now. I think we do. We need to find some new languages. Right, so on to my topic. 
which this week is on national costumes. Hurrah! This actually came about from a Twitter conversation we had, Richard, yeah. uh, a few weeks ago, because you congratulated me on uh, Norway's National Day, which is the 17th of May, mm. posting a picture of this woman in the middle of the fjords or something wearing a folk costume called a bunad. And so we started having a little bit of a conversation. Well, I imagined you wandering the streets of Bath, <laughs> clad yes. in that way, sort of shouting for vodka and lutefisk or something, but no, you didn't wear a cap. Not quite, but only because my bunad isn't here in England. It's back in Norway. So but do you have one? one? I do have one, oh yes. Goodness. And did your mother make it? Or? She did, she oh, did. Oh, so nice. this is quite traditional. So they are, if you haven't seen them, they are woolen dresses, basically, with a huge amount of embroidery on them. So they're, they're all handmade. There's a, there's a lot of craft work going on. Um, mine was actually a graduation present from my mother. Oh, she spent lovely. years That's embroidering so it, which is very nice. Yeah. But they are really, really interesting. Apparently, something like 80% of Norwegian women have at least one. Mm -hmm. That's how popular they are still today. Mm -hmm. Even though they're not obviously, you know, fashionable as such, they're slightly odd looking. But when I got mine, I was very, very interested in them. And they traditionally, you would get one uh, maybe at confirmation. That's quite normal for girls to get them. But they're not actually all that old. I assumed that they were going back hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years. But they really date back to about the 19th century. Well, sort of 18th century is when they started taking an interest in some of these folk costumes around the country. And when I started researching this and looking into other countries, they're pretty much the same, um, a lot of Europe especially, they all seem to come in in this national romantic period. 1840s especially, lots of countries seem to start developing them then. And in some places, they are also a bit of a, a reaction against the Industrial Revolution, so all this new technology and new things coming in. And so you have a lot of people looking back towards what they feel is more pure and more traditional, and that includes folk costumes, in places, it's also to do with national identities because obviously they do become national costumes as such, but quite a lot of the time they are they're regionals. They're not necessarily, you're not necessarily expressing your country as opposed to another country, but they're sort of regional things. So in Norway, we have about 450 different types and uh, so they all got different regions. You're meant to have the one that you're from an area your family is from. So there's lots of rules and regulations. In fact, we have a committee, a national committee on them. Well, I wanted to ask you about that. Yes. So, so well, is it the embroidery that's distinctive to your region or is it the cut or is it the constituent part? All of that. Actually, they look quite different. So this can be colour, patterns, different styles, embroidery as well. So they are very, very specific. And traditionally, they, they'll have also things, uh, which is the same with, with other uh, countries as well, coded into them so things like if you're married you might wear a different type of socks than you know or stockings as if you're oh, unmarried oh. Uh, you're always meant to wear headgear it's quite some people are quite strict about it so we have what we call the bunard police oh <laughs> so on, really? yes so they go around the 17th of my national days where you really meant to, to wear it and the first time I put mine on I, I got about halfway down the street before I was accosted what did you do wrong I, I, I'd buttoned up the shirt wrong and I was not wearing a hat my Norwegian friend, he turned up on 17th May wearing Norwegian national dress without the slightest hint of self-consciousness at yeah. all. I thought it was so impressive. No, they are completely. And it's interesting because they're also um, permitted to be used as the sort of highest, most formal 
in any occasion. So if you were invited to the royal palace to meet the king or something like that, you could wear your folk costume. So it's, it's a sort of, it is the highest I think it's formality. lovely, actually. I, yeah, I can't imagine what we'd wear. Well, I was wondering, I mean, that's Morris very dancing. interesting. Would the royal family, the Norwegian royal family wear Yes, so they have too. them. So they will also wear them. So it's a very popular, and they became more popular after the uh, Second World War when Norway yeah. was occupied. Yeah. And the Nazis did try to kind of appropriate them because, of course, they were very into everything Germanic and everything Scandinavian traditional. But it didn't quite work, so it still became a, a sort of symbol um, after the war as well. Here's the thing, right? I went to Bayreuth for the Wagner Festival for the first time a few years ago. And that is an occasion where you're encouraged to wear evening dress or national dress, so you have the option. So most of us were in black tie, which I suppose is a kind of, not quite national dress, but it's a sort of uniform of a kind, isn't it? Exactly a uniform. Yes. It looks the same. But I noticed that a couple of people were in the national dress of their own countries. The Bavarians, interestingly, came in national dress, wearing yes. lederhosen, which seemed rather dressed down to me, but they were very proud of that. Yeah. The Japanese, the men were wearing black tie, but the women were wearing kimonos. Yes. I fell down a kimono rabbit hole, actually, oh, doing great. some research on this, um, because they've got a really long history. Although the kimono, do you know what it means? No. It actually just means the thing to wear. Uh, <laughs> which is sort of slightly catch all expression <laughs> yeah really. pretty much but that term was really uh, adopted in the mid 19th century but they've been used for hundreds of years before that but actually coming from sort of an older ancestor that dates way back to the Heian period so 8th to 12th century that was a garment that later became known as a kosode which means small sleeves oh. and that becomes a forerunner to the kimono as we know it and that was pretty much what everyone wore and you have this really interesting period from the 17th century and into the late 19th century which was the sort of last era of traditional Japan so there's not much contact with other parts of, of the world and western world so this is sort of the way of sort of elements of what they meant to be Japanese so it was a cultural marker very much and Everyone wore them regardless of uh, social status, but the distinctions were within the type. So it was not as regional as some of these other ones in other countries, but it was not to do with social status, fabric, techniques, colours, all of those things really explained who you were and how you fitted into society. Charles and I are English, but in the United Kingdom, in Scotland, of course, mm. national dress does the same thing, the kilt with the mm -hmm. tartan, which will tell you the clan derivation and also the geographical origin of a particular family or sept of that family and there yeah. in Scotland kilts are worn without any self-consciousness I think true, yeah. Yeah. it seems to be quite a lot of countries that have had a stage where creating that national identity has been very important so in Norway, for example, this sort of also came about when we uh, gained independence from Denmark. So okay. being Norwegian was very important. And Wales, actually. So there's Welsh national dress. Of course. And especially for, for women. And that really came about in the 19th century. Similar sort of thing, uh, that there was this idea that they had to really try to hold on to a lot of Welsh national identity and dress was used as a part of that. So. And that figures, if, especially if your territorial claim is lost, or something, yeah. then you become yourself, don't you? A piece of territory that you can mark out distinctively. Precisely, and clothing is a very good way of doing that, isn't yeah. it? Because it's something that everyone can wear. And if it does hark back to something more traditional, and in this case, actually, the, the Welsh national dress, there's a woman called Augusta Hall, who was a really big proponent of this dress and worked very, very hard to make it something that was adopted. Uh, but they were sort of, it doesn't really necessarily hark back to proper traditional dress, I don't think. But I can think of one. Elements. Yes. Uh, football colours. 
Yeah. When I was in Islington in North London, I was involved in a parish with a big working class London population. And on, when boys and girls were confirmed, the boys would come in their football shirts, their Arsenal shirts usually, because that was seen as same sort of thing. This is tells you what you need to know it's about the this person. Thing. Yes. Yeah. yeah, that's so well, it's, it's the same concept, isn't it? It's this idea of you're, you're telling people. I mean, we, we sort of do that anyway to an extent with what we're wearing, but this is a very clear marker and um, it's when they become national or ethnic costume that's you're doing it on a much bigger scale aren't you I remember this actually brings up a a guilty conscience for me because on New Year's Eve on 1999 I had a bunch of friends coming from all over the place all over the world to come for to stay with me and the Swedish couple, very glamorous, said uh, that, that I was talking to the wife. She said, what shall I wear? And I said, I just wear a national dress as a joke. You know, I just said that as a joke, assuming she'd come in her usual very fine gear. And then she arrived that night, everyone else looking spectacular. And she looked a bit like a milkmaid and luckily had a sense of humor about it. But it was a terrible moment. I host. know. I'm only going to wear a dirndl when I come to your house. <laughs> Shall you do that and I'll bring my boon out and we'll come yes. and descend Let's on Charles. Do it. Yes, and, and I'll just pretend you. I don't notice. Yes. Dirndl and an Arsenal shirt. That's yes. going to be my look. <laughs> <laughs> I like it. No, but it's, a, it's, a, it's such an interesting to see how it seems to be the same pretty much all over the, the world, that you have all these different things. But do you want to know my favourite fact? Yeah, very much so. So... Having been disappointed years ago that the boonad was not actually a very old thing, I thought, well, what can we get any that go further back than the kimono and all of that stuff? And the only one I found that I sort of think fits in this category was actually the toga. Oh, yes. Because... Obviously, we all know that the Romans wore togas, but there's a couple of rules, really, at certain periods in the Roman uh, times that certain people like non-citizens and exiles were not actually allowed to wear togas. And Virgil, for example, called the Romans the togad race. Mm. And there's various other texts as well, where Emperor Augustus, for example, again, uses that term, the togad race. And Pliny the Younger, again, talks about somebody who comes in wearing Greek clothes because he had been banished and wasn't allowed to wear the toga anymore. So, again, it's that idea that Romanness is encapsulated well, in I love that. And I, I love the fact that it's something so incredibly simple and practical, I imagine, for, you know, the climate half of the year in ancient Rome. No, it's lovely. I want more national dress, not less. Yes. We should all... I think we should <laughs> form a committee, maybe speak to your kind of police... Yes, the Boonas police. We can import them, can't we? No, we've got to do that. (laughs) Would it be a bowler hat or so? I'm not sure what it would be for gents. When did people last wear a bowler hat? In the city, probably only about 30 years ago. Regimental things. My dad used to wear, there's a regimental reunion, he used to wear a bowler hat. Yes, and an umbrella. Yeah. Mm. (laughs) Umbrella and a bowler hat. There we go. Literally. It sounds mad. (laughs) Okay, well, let's see if we can get that movement going. (laughs) (laughs) So, I think that brings us to the end. We've all done our parts does that mean this is the moment where we we get the decision from our disembodied voice just seems to be doing having a lovely time and then all of a sudden some bean counter interrupts (laughs) and just tries to cram the quart of our experience into the pint pot of mean metrics we're not here just to have fun and enjoy ourselves richard it's cutthroat stuff yeah so the winner this week richard it's not you (laughs) (laughs) and i know you were disappointed when charles didn't include the A-team in his list of crack military units. <laughs> but nevertheless, the winner this week is Charles. Oh, oh, thank you. Wonderful. Thank you. Well Bravo. deserved. Well done. So before we go, though, we have to decide what to do next week again. Okay. 
So, Richard, I think you're going to go back to flowers again. Yes. Which one is your chosen one this time? The rhododendron. Excellent. Ooh. Now, Charles, you, I believe, are going to talk about peacocks. I am indeed. I have. I mean, I'm lucky enough to have one, and it's it's piqued my interest. Mm. <laughs> Very good. And mine is actually inspired by my sugar topic the other week when I ended up talking about dentures. So I'm going to be talking about prosthetics next oh, time. Very good. Excellent. So many rabbit holes. So that's it for this week, I think. So thank you, everyone, for listening to the podcast. If you like what you heard, please do subscribe and leave us a review so that other people can find us. You can also suggest other rabbit holes for us to fall down in future episodes by sending us an email. Write to rabbitholedetectives at gmail.com. And thank you to everyone who sent in topics so far. We really enjoyed reading them. And don't forget that each week, one of us will be in our Rabbit Hole Detectives column in the Daily Telegraph discussing a favourite fact or two. So, in the words from Lewis Carroll's Alice, I'm not crazy. My reality is just different from yours. Goodbye. Bye. Bye Bye-bye. Thank you.